Hello and welcome again to the Lydia Magruder channel. Today I'm going to be talking about miracles and special divine providences and how these things interact and some epistemological principles that apply to them. Now this uh, meditation and the choice of this topic for this video and probably the next one were prompted uh, not by what you might think. You might think that they were prompted by the recent events at Asbury. Uh, and actually, that's just a coincidence. What prompted these thoughts was a uh, exchange, in exchange, an email with a friend. We were talking about the testimony of Andrew Claven, of how he uh, came to be a Christian believer. And I will link the, the relevant video in the show notes. Specifically, there was a place where when Clavin was an unbeliever, he was contemplating suicide. And as he was sitting in his home office contemplating suicide, he had a uh, baseball game on in the background. And there came on an interview with a Christian baseball player named Gary Carter, who often was mentioning his Christian faith. But what struck Clavin was not a mention of his Christian faith, but rather a discussion that Clavin had with the reporter about his chronic pain in his knees. And uh, Carter had just um, made a, a play. He'd run really fast to first base. And the reporter said to Carter, how can you run that fast when you have really bad knees? Because everyone knew that because Carter was a catcher, he had a lot of pain in his knees. And Carter said, well, sometimes you just have to play in pain and for some reason that kind of you know be tough message was what Clavin needed to hear and so he abandoned his thoughts of committing suicide and was able to move on with life and that would work for everybody as far as preventing suicide but it was it was just helpful to Clavin and he you know he hadn't really been listening to the baseball game but then he happened to be struck by that interview with Gary Carter. And my correspondent said, isn't it odd how we, we will say God used that interview? What do we really metaphysically mean by that? Do we mean that God sort of nudged Gary Carter to say that sometimes you just have to play in pain or that God nudged Andrew Clavin to pay special attention at that moment? Or did God just allow it to happen? In what sense do we give God credit for that? What does it mean to say God used that? Uh, God saved Clavin from committing suicide by that interview with Carter. That's a good question. That's a very good question. And that got me to thinking that this might be a good type of thing to discuss here, God's use of what appear to be secondary causes, ordinary means, and how that interacts with Christianity, how that interacts with epistemology, and how that interacts with evidence for what we might call actual miracles, where God is, is clearly has to be reaching down and doing something to change what would happen by ordinary means. I think we should acknowledge that if God did something to make sure that Carter said that, if he even gave him a nudge um, 
to stay it or he even gave Clavin a nudge to listen to it plausibly there actually was some kind of interaction between God and the physical world anyway because we are a mind-body composite and so um, very plausibly there would be neuron firings in one of their brains or the other of their brains that there would not otherwise have been and if God was making those neurons fire then that is a miracle but if if so it's a very subtle one and it probably just seemed to Clavin as he tells the story like he was just listening uh to the radio and it probably just seemed to Carter like he was trying to think what to say and the answer to that question about running with the pain in his knees uh I don't think that there would be any kind of special feeling that it would have uh that would be different from just thinking of listening thinking about what was said or thinking of saying it so it would be a very subtle unobvious miracle even if God was making their uh, brains do something that their brains would not have done so the first uh, principle that I want to say here is in relation to Christianity and the theology of Christianity support for Christianity I do not believe that man can be justified in believing that unless God gives us an obvious miracle I don't think that those little kind of subtle special providences are going to be enough epistemologically for us as human beings to be justified in believing that God is a trinity, God uh, loves us as individuals, God sent Jesus of Nazareth who's a specific man, I mean obviously we're going to have to have specific evidence there, and God certified his message, certified him as uh, God incarnate and therefore endorsed the message of forgiveness of sins and so forth. G.K. Chesterton expressed, I believe, this same thought by saying that God could not save the world by philosophy. God had to save the world by a story. Now, sometimes people use that word story. I get a little nervous, like we need to make it clear it's an objectively true story. But I like to at least interpret Chesterton is meaning something epistemological that I would also endorse, which is that perfect being theology, however helpful it is in some ways, is not to take, is not going to take you all the way to Christian theology. It's not going to take you all the way to, you know, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and not imputing their sins unto them. Um, so with apologies to uh, Richard Swinburne and Josh Rasmussen, for both of whom I have great respect, I would emphasize very strongly the role of special revelation uh, as very much necessary. And I'm not even sure that general a priori philosophical considerations can get us very far on the road to the idea that God is a trinity or that God would uh, send someone to redeem us from our sins so we could be forgiven. I, I really think there's a far bigger role there played by the historical evidence for those specific claims and of course principally the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so first principle to be justified in believing Christian theology, we strongly need evidence for big, obvious, unsubtle miracles, things that are unquestionably miraculous if they occurred. Second principle, once we have that kind of evidence and we've recognized it for what it is, 
then that is going to raise our prior probability for other miracles. Um, an example I like to use a lot of times is the raising of Jairus' daughter. Another example I like to use a lot is the woman with an issue of blood. So these are miracles in the Gospels for which we have relatively brief narrations, okay? Um, but if they happened, they were real miracles, right? Um, physical miracles, healing and a raising from the dead. Now, when we talk about prior probability, it doesn't have to go in chronological order. Um, the resurrection can raise the prior probability uh, by which we just mean the independent probability aside from the specific narrative of the healing of the woman with an issue of blood. Um, so that's legitimate. That's not reasoning in a circle. When we say we have independent reason to believe Jesus really was God because he rose from the dead, then that in turn provides a line of evidence so it doesn't require as much evidence. We, we don't approach it and shouldn't approach it with as much skepticism when we have another account of a miracle of Jesus. That's epistemologically legitimate. But I would go now to the third principle, which is that even then we do need good specific evidence of some kind that that really happened. So we need reason, for example, to believe that the narrative of the woman with an issue of blood came from someone who was on the spot, that it wasn't just a late legendary accretion. So it's not like everything that it, any document might ever attribute to Jesus is something we'd say, well, you know, we believe he was uh, the son of God, so we're going to, you know, automatically believe that. So I don't believe the story of Jesus making a bird out of clay when he was a child and making it fly. It's in one of the apocryphal gospels because I don't think those are good sources of things that he actually did. And I think obviously we can apply this to modern miracles as well, or claimed modern miracles. Even if a claimed modern miracle occurs in a Christian setting, even if it appears to be associated with uh, sound Christian doctrine rather than with theological error and so forth, um, we don't automatically believe it. We still should require uh, good narrative evidence of that particular miracle. Now this brings me to my fourth and for this presentation last principles. So you can see I'm kind of going back and forth, right? You know, on the one hand, we need evidence for a big miracle to be justified in believing Christianity is true. On the other hand, um, once we have evidence of that, that does raise the prior probability for other miracles attributed to Jesus or within a Orthodox Christian setting. But on the other hand, we still need good evidence of those particular miracles. We just don't need as much evidence as we would if we had no prior probability that uh, good prior probability that Christianity is true. And now going back again, when we have evidence for obvious miracles, 
things that are undoubtedly divine intervention in the nat natural order, that also increases our legitimate probability for unobvious acts of God and even things that we might call special divine providences where we are unsure as to what the metaphysical status would have been there, how God would have brought it about, and if it was any kind of miracle, it was unobvious. And that brings me back to Clavin's account of his conversion. I believe that since Clavin can have, and I hope he has reflected on this, I hope he's an evidentialist, um, good evidence that Christianity is true, good independent evidence that God raised Jesus from the dead and so forth, and that God loves Andrew Clavin and cares about him individually, okay, and that God is not willing that any should perish and all of that. Um, that gives him reason legitimately to give thanks to God for in some way using that interview with Gary Carter to save him from committing suicide, okay? And we can do this in our own lives as Christians. And I often talk about epistemic routing here. In that case, the, the belief that God has used this or done this unobvious thing where we're not even quite sure how he carried it out, is a conclusion. It's not, it's not a premise. It's the end of a process of arguing. And so a lot of the things that we stand up and we testify about or that we talk about when we give our own story are those kinds of things where we're going to say, well, that's, you know, I believe that as a conclusion and I thank God for it not in an irrational or an irrational way, but rationally, but it's as a result of my other evidence that uh, Christianity is true, which comes through obvious things. The obvious gives us a, a, a rational ground to thank God for the unobvious. So we may not know, you know, uh, how this works. Uh, I believe God is timeless. Is God timelessly up there looking down and saying, okay, Gary, Gary Carter's just going to say this. I tenselessly I see Gary Carter saying this and Clavin is going to hear it I tenselessly see Clavin hearing it without my intervention so good um you know God knows all things but if it if it hadn't been going to happen I would have intervened to to make sure something happened to save Clavin don't get me started on election um but because Clavin was someone he was drawing unto himself okay i don't know is that how that works you know that god's god kind of supervises and he intervenes if if needed um but sometimes in very unobvious ways ways that don't really look miraculous at all or should we just say you know if god brought this to my mind if god encouraged me then he must have you know booped my brain cells or something, you know, or my brain chemistry. We don't know and we don't have to decide. We don't have to make up our minds about that. But either way, we know that God is sovereign over all things and we can thank him for those answers to prayer. So 
if you feel you can't go on, as happens to most Christians, most times, you know, in their lives, that is to say that there's some time when they feel they can't go on. Uh, maybe not contemplating suicide, maybe. The Apostle Paul at least says that when he was in Asia, he was he, he just was pressed out of all measure. You know, that he just was insufficient and that God helped him there. And you do find the strength to go on. You should thank God. You know, you shouldn't say, oh, well, that was probably just a natural event. So, you know, it would have happened anyway. I'm not going to thank God. Um, no, you should thank God because whatever way he did it, <clears throat> metaphysically, he deserves praise and thanks. How do we know that? We know that because of the things that are much more obvious. So with those four principles in mind, what I want to go on to talk about next time concerns a certain way of thinking that kind of puts God in a box and that says God is never going to act in an obviously miraculous way outside of that box. Um, and that could come through like a really hard line cessationism or it could come through, it could come in the form of a hostility to intelligent design. That seems to me to be a very salient example that's in my mind because I'm, I favor a lot of the intelligent design arguments and I uh, very much disfavor a lot of the so-called Christian objections. And what I'm gonna talk about next time is the interesting fact that if we try to confine God only to doing obvious miracles within so-called salvation history, we're actually gonna cut that off at the, root, at the root too. And we're going to make it epistemologically very hard, if not impossible, for the people in the original circumstances in so-called salvation history to be justified in believing that God has performed a miracle there either. So that'll maybe bring you back next time. And I, I hope you'll be interested in my taking it in that direction. So please come back next time to the Lydia McGrew channel. Uh, here we're applying epistemological principles to the philosophy of religion, to Christianity, to miracles, and in that way, making common sense rigorous.